what up? Welcome to the first episode of the National Film Society podcast. I'm Patrick, and I'm joined by my friend, actor, producer, director, restaurateur, Yuji Okamoto. What's up, Yuji? How you doing? What's up? I'm wait, wait. I'm your first. <laughs> yep, my first, and hopefully not the last. Wow. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, no worries, man. Thanks for having me. So you've been in movies like The Karate Kid Part 2, True Believer, Better Off Debt, Awesome Asian Bad Guys, of course, and most recently, Cobra Kai. But Karate Kid Part 2, that was one of the most formative movies of my childhood. And I've always wondered what it was like auditioning for that role. And I know that before that you said that you were kind of a shy kid growing up, but then, you know, you'd had some roles and then all of a sudden Karate Kid 2 came up. What was it like auditioning for such an iconic role? Yeah. Um, this was back in 1985 is when we um, shot the film. Uh, the casting director, uh, I had previously worked uh, two films uh, with her. Um, one was Aloha Summer. And uh, the other one was um, Better Off Dead. Um, yeah, so it was, uh, we had already had kind of this connection. Uh, so when the role of Chosen came up for Karate Kid 2, she um, thought of me and wanted me to come in to uh, read for the role. She <clears throat> set up, a, of course, a meeting with my agent. and uh, So I went in and, and met with her and ironically enough, she, she, for some reason thought I was, you know, might've been too big or tall for the role because, uh, at the time Ralph was, uh, hadn't, I don't know, maybe he hadn't hit his growth spurt, who knows, but, um, she, she just didn't want me to, to be too big. So, um, when I went in to meet with John Ableton, she said, Oh yeah, when you come to the room, just, just kind of slouch a little bit, you know, so, you know, you're not as tall. And I said, oh, sure, sure. I can do that. So I'm an actor. I can do anything. Um, so I, I get into the room and first thing John says is like, why are you slouching, man? Uh, you, I want a menacing guy. I want you to stand tall and, you know, be this bully to, to uh, you know, Daniel-san. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, I can do that. So, you know, I'm standing up straight and doing my, my shtick and, uh, you know, he's looking through his, his lens the whole time, you know, because that's what he d does. He's, he videos everything. And then, uh, uh, then I went back in a sec, a second time with him and, and, uh, Jerry Weintraub and, and, uh, read for them. And then I got the call to, uh, you know, come out to, to Hawaii and, and, you know, start filming. So it was, it was pretty amazing because not only is it a big, you know, project, big film, but we got to shoot in Hawaii. How long was the shoot? Uh, so I think in total, probably 15 weeks, uh, we shot probably six, six and a half in Hawaii. And then uh, the rest of it, we shot in Burbank, which was kind of, I'll say it. It's a letdown, right? You go from Hawaii first, then you go back to Burbank <laughs> to shoot the rest of the film. It's like, ah, you know, but I tell you, it was, it was a great time. 
Um, you know, it's the eighties, right? I mean, it's, it's the eighties was a great time for, uh, to be an actor because, you know, back then they didn't have like, so the so-called million, $25 million, uh, actors, right. They, they had, you know, um, they had money to pay the actors, which was really nice. You know, it, it was, it was a good time because, um, they kind of spread the wealth. It wasn't, where, you know, you, this is what you get. Sorry, take it or leave it, you know, and, and, you know, in, in the two thousands, especially that's what you heard. It's like, take it or leave it. So, but it was a, it was a great time. After the audition, did you feel pretty good? Did you feel like you had a pretty good shot at the role? And also were there, you know, a bunch of other actors that you came up with that were going for this role as well? I mean, I, I felt pretty confident as far as what I did. I mean, you know, you kind of leave it in their hands. You do what you can. And, you know, as an actor, you can't beat yourself over the head with, um, you know, the audition process. You prep for it and you try and deliver the best you can. And then you have to move forward because the worst thing as an actor, you, you cannot just hold on to all this stuff because you'll, you'll drive yourself nuts. Um, I'll give you an example of, you know, leaving it in the room and saying, you know, screw it. This is, this is it. I did a audition for a film called blue tiger back in the day. And this was after karate kid, but I just want to give you an example of how, you know, you want to give a hundred percent, but sometimes, you know, it may not be your day, right? So I went in there and I had a lot of stuff going on in my life, but you know, um, you know, you try to leave that shit at the door. I go into the audition. I sucked terribly. I mean, it was just, I fell on my face. That was terrible. So I went back to my car and I said, you know what? Uh, you know, in life, they always say you only get one shot at this. And then I said, you know what? I, I don't believe in that. I said, and I, I knew at that time I could do better than what I did. So I went back into the uh, casting director's office and the director was still there. Um, and I said, yo, man, uh, I need another shot. Give me another shot at this and I will deliver. I promise you. Um, let, let me let me give give it another shot. And so he, he said, OK, you know, most actors would not do that. Most actors just say, oh, I screwed up, get in the car, beat yourself on the head, go home. So I, you know, uh, did the audition. And uh, later that day, I got the job. So um, that was one of those moments where, you know, you take a chance, you, you go for it. Um, but, you know, like I said, most of the time you go into the audition, you give it all, all you can, and then you just leave it and, and move, move forward. So. Right. For sure. So when you got the news that you booked the role of Chosen, do you remember how you reacted? Do you remember that moment? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I remember getting called call at, at home and, and they said, oh, just want to let you know that uh, the uh, casting office called and said that you got the job. And, and I, honestly, I was ex- <clears throat> super excited um, but, you know, at the time, you don't know necessarily how big the film is going to be. 
all I knew was, hey, where, where is it shooting? Oh, it's shooting in Hawaii. Whoo, you know, and that was honestly, that was my first gut reaction because I, I have this affinity for Hawaii. I love Hawaii so much um, that when I heard that they were shooting part of it in Hawaii, that's what got me excited at the time. Um, you know, and, and hindsight being 2020, I mean, you think about how, how lucky, uh, you know, you are because there was a lot of people that auditioned for it. I mean, they were looking in Japan, East Coast, everywhere for this particular character. And so for me to, to be able to um, get the role, I mean, it was a, it was a true blessing. Um, so I, I thank my lucky stars. And, and ironically enough, you mentioned, did I know anybody else? Yeah, there was, a, you know, the usual suspects in the room, uh, you know, the, uh, all the actors that you see um, at every audition. Um, and the two, uh, guys that played my henchmen also auditioned for the role of chosen. So, um, you know, it's a little odd and uncomfortable, you know, somewhat because I, you know, but, um, they were great. Uh, had a, had a good time with my, with my boys. Did you know Tamla Tamita beforehand or did you guys actually meet on the shoot? Yeah, we we met on the shoot. I mean, this was probably one of her, I think, first gigs, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, She just had done the whole Miss Nisei week and all that stuff and um, the the whole pageant stuff. And and, uh, uh, she um, was um, chosen to play the the role of Kumiko. And she was great. Um, You know, I can't imagine anybody else playing it. she was, um, you know, she had the look, she had the vibe, uh, she had ties to Okinawa. Uh, so it was uh, really cool. So um, uh, that was the first time uh, I had met her. And, and you know how she is, right? Because we worked, uh, we all worked together on your show. Um, she is just a guy, you know? And I mean that in, in the, the most positive sense uh she <clears throat> she's just somebody you could just chill and hang out with and you know it was it was just like one of the guys did you guys have to compare accents that you had to have in this movie <laughs> uh no we did not uh you know because i think with I, I don't know uh certain influences that you may have uh in your life uh as as like say the character we all, you know, might have grew up different ways. So, um, you know, we never really compared accents. She had her way of saying it. I had mine. Uh, Danny, of course, uh, Kamikona, who played my uncle, had his way, which was, you know, you know, and, you know, he was, the, you know, the whole samurai thing, you know. So on the Karate Kid part two shoot, what was maybe the toughest scene for you to shoot in any way, emotionally, physically, whatever, just as an actor. Um, I'm trying to think back if there was any moment like that. Um, I mean, cause honestly I was just, uh, you know, so almost every scene was about me just brutalizing, you know, Daniel San, <laughs> uh, you know, talking smack to, 
um, Mr. Miyagi and, you know, all that stuff. So um, the only thing that I could think of that uh, I feared for my life was when Tamlin threw that tomato. Uh, I don't know if you know Tamlin. She, <laughs> she played ball. and So she has a good arm. And I remember the tomato whizzing by my ear on one of the, one of the takes. I said, damn. <laughs> uh, no, but it, in all honesty, um trying to think of anything that really was uh, stood out. I mean, there was one scene, you know, where I felt kind of uncomfortable because of what um, my character was doing, which was there was a scene at the, uh, you know, dojo where um, I go in with the, the spear and I knock the shrine off the, the table. And mm-hmm. so uh, the, the props department, you know, and, and granted, they, they do um, their job and put in all the things that's supposed to go in a, a little shrine and whatnot. And um, being that I'm Buddhist, I said, you know, because this looks like a like a Shinto shrine and everything. I said, you know what? Do you mind emptying that out? Because I, I just would have this tremendous guilt of just doing this and there's stuff in there and, and I just felt uncomfortable about it. And uh, they said, by all means, let's clear out this, this shrine. And so um, it was basically the shell and that was all that I was knocking over. So that was one of the things where I thought, ah, you know, if I can, you know, do my, uh, pay my respects to, uh, you know, uh, any kind of any religion, I thought, you know, I, I'd rather um, be safe than sorry and just take out everything because, mm-hmm. um, you know, it just didn't feel right. And which is great. They, they were very respectful of that. And so um, that was that was the only moment. Everything else, um, there was never really anything emotional necessarily. Uh, the only time was uh, at the end of the film where, uh, you know, everybody seems to be against me and doing the, the, the rattle thing. And I thought, man, that's <laughs> jacked up. I grew up in this town and this kid comes in here and this is what I get. You know, so, um, you know, maybe that was maybe the, the, the only time that he really cares, you know, and maybe when his uncle says you are dead to me and whatever, and I run off and, you know, uh, from the storm and all that, uh, funny thing was when my grandpa saw the movie and this is back in 86 when it came out. He saw the movie and it's funny. He felt sorry for me too when everybody turned against me in the village. And, uh, you know, I was pretty much by myself trying to, you know, regain my so-called honor. Um, so, yeah, that was, was interesting that he felt that way. So the tomato throwing scene, uh, that's pretty iconic. The one that you mentioned where Tamlin throws a tomato and it hits you in the back of your shirt. And, you know, it's it's funny because like I remember watching that and it's like oh the dude took his he takes his shirt off and then all of a sudden he turns around and he's got the most massive pecs like he doesn't miss peck day uh, <laughs> what the hell man did they make you like do a thousand pushups before that before <laughs> uh, that scene yeah you know it's funny because I was a uh, kind of the skinny scrawny kid growing up and and uh, it wasn't until probably high school that I actually started to. Uh, work out a little bit 
And, um, you know, you do martial arts, uh, you know, as a kid and whatnot. Um, but to put on that kind of a little more bulk, uh, you'd have to hit the weights. Uh, so for, you know, Karate Kid, I pretty much just uh, hit the gym. I hit the gym almost every day uh, as part of my routine. I'd get up early and um, hit the gym. Uh, crazy enough, I ate whatever the hell I wanted, <laughs> which is crazy because, at the, you know, you can't do that now, of course. Uh, nope. But back then, I had such a high metabolism that uh, it was harder for me to keep the weight on uh, than, than, you know, just losing weight. So, uh, I just had just keep eating and then I just worked out all the time. And, and, uh, you know, as far as my packs, I mean, that's the one thing that blows up. Oh, and my arms blow up. So it's crazy how those two body parts just blow up. As soon as I start working out, um, you know, that's kind of what happens. But who knows? Maybe I was doing push-ups on the side, you know, just to get that pump, you know. Yeah. We shot that scene, <laughs> yeah. right? And I think I was trying to just get cut, you know, so I wouldn't have uh, any flab or anything. I'm like, God, but, man, I just pretty much ate what I wanted and, and you know, just worked out. Was it a requirement by production to get really bulked up or – was it something you just decided to do to be that menacing villain compared to Ralph Macho, scrawny Daniel Russo? Yeah, uh, they didn't require anything. They just, uh, you know, um, they, they didn't really say anything because maybe they knew that I would, you know, do the work or whatever. But um, nothing was ever said to me about, oh, you got to go to the gym all the time and blah, blah, blah. I just pretty much just did it. Um, and mm -hmm. you know, and it wasn't like I was doing heavy weights necessarily. Um, because if you do too much heavy weights, then you become, you know, too big and slow and all that. So I worked out, but I did a lot more of reps as opposed to doing, you know, heavy mm -hmm. weights. Right. Cause I thought it, it, kind of fits the character better because he's a martial artist that if he was more lean and as opposed to, you know, being like, like Bolo, I mean, I don't want to be like Bolo. That guy was huge. Right. Yeah. Um, so I just, yeah, he was. you know, kept, kept that kind of, you know, physique throughout the whole show. In another universe chosen is a, probably a sumo wrestler. <laughs> I just, I just do it. I just watched this thing on, uh, is it ESPN or something? I forget, but they had this special on sumo wrestlers. I have tremendous respect for all those dudes, man. Mm -hmm. Holy crap. I had for no sure. idea the kind of regiment they have to go through, how much they have to sacrifice to be a sumo wrestler. I mean, they don't get paid well because they're just stuck in these sumo kind of schools where you cannot leave. That is your job 24 seven. You know, the young guys are cooking for the older guys and, you know, and, and it's just like this whole like martial arts ish kind of thing where you just, you know, like the Shaolin temple, you're stuck there. You cannot leave and no communication on the outside world. This is what you do. And it was pretty amazing to watch these guys because I think once you achieve a certain amount of success and you go on to 
um, get on the professional stage and whatnot. Then you're allowed to have a girlfriend, get married, have a somewhat normal life because otherwise you're stuck in this almost like this this uh, temple and you cannot leave. So it's pretty amazing. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. I would definitely pay money to watch that multiverse version of Karate Kid Part 2 when Chosen <laughs> is a sumo wrestler. So the tomato throwing scene, how many takes of that did you do? Was it a one-shot deal or did you have to do it several times? Oh and use multiple shirts over and over and over again. <laughs> well, they did have multiple shirts on that day, just in case. Um, but, you know, she pretty much nailed it. There was maybe three, I want to say, that were thrown. Um, you know, two, two, I guess, hit the mark. And then the other one, um, you know, was by my ear. But, uh, yeah, she, she has an arm, though. She can throw <laughs> And uh, I think she played softball or whatever. And, and so she's, she's quite the athlete. Um, but yeah, it was, it's funny how much, uh, you know, you think about perspective, right? Wardrobe, mm -hmm. um, you know, on that show was kind of important for um, Chosen's character. Also for, uh, you know, Danny Kamakona too. He had those really sharp suits and, yeah. you know, just really super mm -hmm. tailored. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the amount of money that they spent, my God, you know, just those sh silk shirts alone, some of those shirts, I mean, you know, back in 85, you know, you drop maybe $300 on one of those shirts. Right. And they were long sleeve, some of those shirts. So they had to cut the sleeve off, put a band on here tailor it to to my body and you know by the end of the you know at the end of the day i mean who knows how much each of those shirts you know cost because of all the the tailoring that they had to do so you know who knows a thousand a shirt or you know whatever yeah. it was it was not cheap and you know you're talking multiples of those and i'm thinking god man and everybody asked me did you keep any of those shirts or you know, whatever happened to that gi, man, that gi was badass. And I said, man, I wish I had, you know, but, you know, I just felt like this is their property and, you know, I'm, you know, this is not, you know, I can't just walk off with shit, you know? So, uh, <laughs> you know, and I said, nah, don't, don't want to, you know, uh, ask. Right. Uh, so, um, the gi is the one thing that I wish I had just asked and said, you know, can I buy like one of the doubles of the key because that thing was badass. Wow. Definitely. The amount of tailoring in uh, time it took to put that thing together because, you know, I had done one for Halloween or whatever. I, my buddy had uh, uh, put this, this key together because he said, I'll do it for you. And then, so, so he did it with highlighter. <laughs> You know, yellow highlighter and markers. You know, you got a ruler and just put those lines in. Well, you think about the the kind of work that actually went into that gi. The it was actual piping that they put in there, piping wow. each one of those, you know, wow. things, the black strands, and they crisscross and stuff. I mean, those things were just in there, sewed in there, and just meticulously done. And and the collar, just man, I tell you. That thing was amazing. And I wished 
uh, I had, um, you know, purchased one of the doubles because yeah, that, that was badass. They should have just given you one. Do you know if any of them still exist? I'm sure. I'm sure it's still maybe at the studio or maybe somebody walked off with it from, from wardrobe. Who knows? Um, but man, that's the sure. one that got away. And I wish I had kept that uh, or purchased it. I mean, yeah. I mean, in Awesome Asian Bad Guys, it was also just marker, <laughs> right? Oh. <laughs> the yeah. Lines yeah. And the pattern. Yeah. And I wish, so I found, so I, I know that the wardrobe was asking me. Uh, whether or not I I had that that gi, and I said no. But a buddy of mine did one for me for Halloween, and but for some reason I could not find that sucker, and I was so bummed because you know it'd be kind of funny that it is like um, you know that hodgepodge kind of uh, gi, um, but then Sweated. I think it was after we wrapped, and might have been like a couple months later. I actually found that sucker and I have it, you know, in my closet and, um, nice. you know, it actually looks not bad from nice. a distance. Yeah. So if you ever, you know, you know, do this thing, I, I, I have it. So. I, I, I will, I will make note of that. <laughs> yes. Yes. I will make sure I, I, uh, store it away and keep it in a safe place. Vacuum seal. Yeah. So at the time, did you think that chosen was, going to be this iconic character because he was really unique right as a villain as a bad guy he wasn't just some random dude with guns or knives and you know yelling stuff he was like this really really well put together you know with the high-waisted slacks and the silk shirts and everything and the and the glistening hair and whatnot did you get a sense that this role was unique at the time yeah you know uh during the 80s that was kind of the uh, the heyday for a lot of nerds, right? Um, you know, they had Revenge of the Nerds and they had uh, uh, Gung Ho and I forgot what other, you know, kind of um, 16 Candles, yep. right? And, um, you know, they had a lot of those kind of roles out there. And, um, you know, when I read... Uh, the script, I thought, wow, this is really cool. There's actually a role that, you know, is a strong Asian American character or Asian character. Um, and, uh, you know, that was, that was kind of rare during that time. Uh, so for me, I was, um, really stoked to be, uh, able to have that opportunity to play that character. And, you know, the thing about it was I wanted to have a sense of fun with him, um, not only is he, you know, menacing and whatnot, but I think he kind of relishes in that role, right? And he has fun with it. And, you know, he has that, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't really care, you know, there's no boundaries, right, for him. So, um, I think when I, uh, you know, had that one scene where, I go into, um, ironically, is it breaking down that, that uh, shrine, knocking it off the table. I come out with a spear and, and uh, you know, it's just like uh, your sensei teach you how to fight with spear. You know, it's kind of that, you know, sense of fun. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to F you up pretty much with a smile on my face, you know. 
And even before that moment, I, I say to him, uh, come here, I want to show you something. I did it with this big smile on my face. And so those, those moments to me, at least uh, give this character a little um, sense of fun. Uh, it, it, I think it, sometimes when you think about uh, bad guys, you know, when they smile, it's even scarier than when they, you know, get that, you know, game face, mean face, whatever. Uh, so I thought, wow, oh, you know, there's, there's different colors, different facets uh, to this character uh, than just the one color of, you know, ah, I'm going to get you, uh, you know, all that stuff. I think, I think that's yeah. why, uh, you know, John Avilton, to his credit, he says, yeah, just, you know, enjoy this, this moment, relish these moments, have fun, you know, and also I, Pat too, Pat, you know, Marita uh, was such a, a wonderful man and, and uh, uh, such an inspiration, right? Uh, you know, he would always um, be a mentor to me and say, look, man, you know, this is your, this is your chance to shine, you know, enjoy it, work your ass off, um, but, you know, have fun. You know, these, these moments, you know, try something like this, you know? And, and so he would always be there uh, and, and he would look out for not only myself, but also uh, look out for Tamlin. You know? So he was always uh, wanting to be that, that, that true Mr. Miyagi for the younger generation. And so I had a tremendous respect for, for Pat and um, also a tremendous respect for John Avildsen, who was uh, an Academy Award winning director. So, um, you know, uh, it, I was in a good place. And, and of course, uh, I, I loved working with uh, Noble McCarthy, who was such a sweetheart. You know, she was, was the, one of the nicest ladies and, you know, would also, um, you know, give advice on, on, you know, not only, you know, the acting, but also life. So, um, you know, when, when these people talk and you, you listen and, uh, you know, hopefully with all the lessons I've learned from them, you know, maybe one day I can pass this information on, you know, and help, uh, the, the new generation of, of young actors or filmmakers out there, you know, and, and in part what they taught me, which is, you know, a lot of really wonderful things. So the movie comes out in 1986 did you get a sense of how big it was going to be while you were shooting it? Or when did you actually realize it was going to be such a popular movie? Um, you know, we didn't have a premiere for this uh, movie. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know why they didn't have a premiere, but, um, or maybe they did, maybe it was in New York or who, wherever, but I never heard about it. I think my invitation was probably lost in the mail or something. Who knows? Um, but, uh, you know, we as a collective, you know, the actors that were based in LA, <clears throat> we all decided, Hey, let's make our own kind of party. Let's make our own kind of premiere. So um, we all, talked amongst each other, you know, Tamlin and, and the guys, my, my henchmen and uh, some of the other folks that were based in LA. And, 
And uh, Tamlin says, you know, my, my dad, of course, you know, is, is, a, is a cop. And so maybe, you know, he can escort, you know, do a police escort to the theater. So we just went to uh, the theater in Westwood. Uh, and uh, it was one of the big theaters uh, uh, in that area. And so it was playing Karate Kid. And this is, I think it was the first night or whatever. <laughs> so we decided, what the hell? We'll just crash this thing, right? So we rented uh, these yeah. limos and we just drove to this theater, pulled up in front. Cops were there. Uh, and then we get out and then people were in line on the ground. Who the fuck are these guys? Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, you know, people were coming out of there like, oh my God, oh shit, you know. There are, you know, reacting to us going in and were you guys like dressed up nice? Uh yeah, kind of. You know, we, we dress a little up a little bit and and uh we go into the theater and we watch the movie, uh, you know, and it was it was really a, a, a great time. Um but you kind of have to make the best of anything on your own sometimes because um I don't know why. But, um, you know, Columbia decided not to do a premiere. So uh, mm -hmm. anyhow, we we did that. And the audience reaction was just amazing. It was so uh, cool to be amongst people that are seeing it the first time. Just like we were seeing it with an audience for the first time. And, um, yeah, it was it was um, very surreal. Um you know, at the time we thought, wow, this is, you know, this is pretty freaking cool, you know, um, not knowing how big it's going to mm -hmm. eventually be, right. uh, because that's how back in the day, I mean, and even today is uh, film successes are based on box office, right? Um, or eyeballs, so whatever you want to call it nowadays. But, um, you know, back, back then it was based off, totally off of um, theater. And it was, uh, it did really, really well that first week. And um, I you got my money. Yes. My Thank money. you for going multiple times. Um, so we, uh, I think I might have gone to Hawaii to see it in Hawaii too, at one of the, the theaters there. And, you know, it was same thing. I was like, oh, you know, and in Hawaii, ironically is, where my my i guess fan base is because there's so many asians there yeah. that they embrace the character they didn't see him as the bad guy you know <laughs> and it was a different perspective when i went there they thought you know yeah he's an asshole but then at the same time they they thought that there was not that many characters that were portrayed that is as a strong asian american uh, male so uh, you know, I think in Hawaii, that's where I was pretty much well received. But here in the States, everybody said, Oh, you're that asshole that was in. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's like, uh, can I get your autograph? <laughs> so, was the Westwood screening that you went to, was that the first time you saw the movie? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's where you know, um, Tamlin's dad pulled up, uh, in his, in his cruiser and, uh, uh, yeah, we pulled up in limos and, and yeah, that's where we saw it. Sorry, this popped up. Wow. I'll be honest. If I were in that position, I would 
go to every screening and just stand outside being like, Hey, how's it going? That's me. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. No, I, you know, I, I just, uh, um, you know, it kind of didn't bother me. I liked a little bit of that anonymity, you know, because, uh, not to say that, phew, man, mm-hmm. to be on the level of, let's say Pat Morita, even Ralph Macchio too. I mean, they both probably got swarmed by, you know, um, fans, autograph seekers. Uh, I went out to dinner in Hawaii with, uh, with Pat and, um, this was during the filming of Karate Kid 2 and, you know, he, I'll never forget how gracious he was to people, even though, you know, we're having dinner and they will all come up and, and, uh, you know, say, can I have your autograph? Can I take a picture with you and whatnot? Uh, and he would, you know, say yes. Uh, sometimes he'd just say, oh, do you mind if we finish our meal? And they'll be happy to, you know, sign whatever, take a photo with you. Uh, so, uh, for, for, from my perspective, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of nice to have people come up and say, you know, I really, I thought you were a jerk. Uh, uh, you played the character really well. I hated you, you know, and, and so, uh, you did a great job, you know, to me, those kind of people that made me feel really, really good because those are the, the true fans that really appreciate, uh, you know, mm-hmm. what you do. And mm-hmm. There's that understanding of, you know, yeah, we're not assholes, you know, we're just playing a character. Um, but yeah, I, I right. would get, you know, the same kind of thing where, you know, you're eating dinner and people would come up and, you know, say, can I you know, please take a photo with you? And, you know, of course it's hard for me to say no, you know, uh, so I take a quick photo and then go back to my meal. And, and if I'm with uh, somebody, they'll just, they'll sit and step in for me and say, you know what, can we eat first? And then, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure you'd be glad to take a photo with you or sign whatever afterwards. And, and so um, and that's what my friends would do for me. But um, yeah, it's, it's weird how, you know, when you think about where my life was, prior to Karate Kid coming coming out. I mean, that definitely did put me on the map. So after Karate Kid 2 comes out, all of a sudden you're you're famous, everybody knows who you are. I guess out of curiosity, like what level of fame, like how did it change? Say you before Karate Kid 2, you were at maybe like a three on a scale of one to ten. And after the movie came out, where would you put it? You know, uh, like I said, it's all perspective. Uh, comparing me to somebody else um, that had done a huge body of work uh, that they were, you know, recognizable movies and big films and whatnot, uh, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a six or seven on, on a scale where... Um, the recognition bounced up, but, uh, you know, it, it, once again, if it were today, I think it'd be a little different because of the immediacy of social media and all that stuff. I think it'd be a little crazier. Um, but 
if you don't see the movies, right, then you, you wouldn't know me from Adam. So I think it bumped up um, probably three, four notches compared to what it was. Um, but, you know, uh, I think it's how you uh, carry yourself too. Right? If you want to be recognized, you'll be recognized if you want that. If that's what you want, you know, I could walk around with a pair of, you know, um, shades that are, you know, crazy or, you know, have my hair a certain way, have my, you know, silk shirts, have, you know. Or no shirt. Yeah, or no shirt, <laughs> uh, you know, wearing gettas or something like that, making noise to to draw attention to myself. But I don't know. I've never uh, been that type of person where I, I like to draw attention like that. I figured, you know, I just want to do the work and let the work speak for itself. And, you know, whatever happens after that, I mean, I have no control over. And, and as long as I live my life the way I want to live it, then, uh, you know, I think, uh, you don't, you won't get all that, you know, peripheral things that, that are coming at you, you know, um, I do, I do enjoy, you know, I do enjoy my life as it is, right? Um, the rest of the stuff, uh, you know, I, I appreciate because of the fans, you know, they, they liked what I did. But as far as anything else, I mean, you know, I, I don't seek, seek out that attention. Did you ever get any free meals out of it? Uh, <laughs> probably like uh free desserts or something like that a little, little extra perk or something like that but uh yeah uh it, it it is nice that uh they recognize your your work and uh, appreciate your work and say thank you or whatever and it you know um yeah it makes you feel wow special but at the same time there's no expectations, right? You know, you don't, you don't uh, make it a point to start talking at the table. Yeah. When I did karate kid uh, too, uh, and played chosen, you know, you don't, it's not what you do. Right. And you don't like, I don't try and draw attention. I know some people uh, that shall remain nameless that talk really loud at the table to draw attention to themselves and say, Oh, it's like, come on, really? You know? So, uh, I'm not that guy. So you had to have an accent, of course, in the movie, uh, how often on the mainland and how often would people come up to you and be surprised that you're American or say something like you speak really good English or that you don't have an accent because to this day, I'm sure people still, say that I have some old YouTube videos of you and a lot of the comments, there's always people who say, wow, he speaks really good English. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. That happens quite a bit. Um, You know, you do, sometimes you talk shows and whatever at, at at Karate Kids uh, heyday. And, and uh, you know, it's funny how, when you start opening your mouth, they go, Oh, wow. I, I didn't expect that. It's like, seriously, dude, I was born in Hollywood, California. What do you expect? Uh, but there was, there's a lot of people that, you know, 
say that same thing. Oh, you speak, man, you speak really good English. So I guess it's a testament of how I did as an actor and how believable I was. So, you know, I'll take that. You know, that's fine. You know, I, I think people just don't know. They just don't realize. And, and uh, you know, you're, you're basically tied to certain characters and, uh, and, and that's, that's how people believe you as, as a person, uh, you know, uh, interesting. I have had many people. In fact, there's a little girl that was, I was flying back from, I think back East, uh, on one of these junkets and this little African-American girl sitting next to me. And she said, um, you know, she made that com- same comment. And I thought, wow, that's really crazy that you, you actually think that I am from Japan and because of the way I talked in the movie and she goes, yeah, I didn't realize that you were, you know, and even, even when you aren't recognized, you still get that. So it doesn't matter. Right. You know, when you start talking and, or even on the phone, you, they see Yujiro Komodo and then I start speaking and they go, wow, uh, you speak really good English. Where are you from? I said, are you serious? You know, you know, and especially back then, you know, in the eighties, uh, it happened quite a bit. There was, uh, an acting class that I went to and, um, I was what they call a, uh, uh, ethics officer. So basically I would make sure that everybody stayed on task, did their scenes, scheduled the scenes with me. So I'd have a list and all that, um, which I hated doing. I, I just, you know, but it was free tuition, right? You just do this and, and you get to still do your scenes and whatnot, but you just got to do all this other crap. And I kid you not, this one girl, uh, who was a famous, um, athlete Olympics. She was in this acting class and she literally turned around in her chair and looked straight, looked uh, me straight in the eye and said, Oh, you know what? I have a a Japanese friend. (laughs) That's it. That was it. And I said, Oh, well, well, good for you. (laughs) Are you serious? What is you know, and then you get the, oh, you know, uh, I have a Japanese friend. You might know them. <laughs> <laughs> like we all know each other. Oh, man, I tell you, sometimes it, it is uh, it is nuts when you think about it. Okay, after Karate Kid Part 2 came out, and it's a big movie, how did that change your expectations for roles as an actor? And were those expectations met? Were there challenges how did that all kind of play out? What was like the aftermath of playing Chosen? Um, you know, when Karate Kid came out, um, I thought maybe my life would change for the better and as far as an actor, but it was all the same. You know, you, that's how you get offered were, were bad guys. And mm. You know, not to say that it was a ethnic thing or anything like that. It wasn't because I was Asian. I think Billy Zapka had the same problem. Billy played such a believable asshole that uh, all he got offered were bad guy roles too. You know, jerks. 
um, rich jerks, whatever. But yeah, I thought it would change and be better, but you know, same kind of thing. And, um, you know, I, for some reason there was, a you know, um, one, one casting director who, uh, was doing this film and it was called true believer. And it was, uh, with James Woods and Robert Downey Jr. And, uh, they called me, um, uh, to come in and audition for this movie. And I read the script and I said, dude, I got to get this role. I got, it's such a, it's such a great role, even though he's kind of a, a bad dude, he was, he was different. And, and so, um, yeah, I, I really pursued this one because I really, really wanted it, you know, and subsequently, sometimes when you really want something really badly, then you, you, you kind of hamstring yourself into trying too hard to get the role. Right. Mm-hmm. So I don't mean to segue into this story, but it's, it's kind of a, a funny story as far as how, you know, you, um, how far, what length you, you, you get, get to go at, at a certain point where you're pushed to the limit and you just say, you know what, I'm done with this, you know, shit or get off the pot. Uh, and so on the fifth freaking audition, uh, I go in there with this totally different attitude because, you know, they saw what I can do. Right. And I thought that that should be good enough. Right. Um, but they said, no, I want, want you to come in one more time and please just come in and blah, blah, blah. You know? And I said, okay, fine, I'll go in. But in my mind, I had this attitude like, you know, F you, I'm going to come in and this, this, you know, is what you want. And this is what you're going to get because I don't give a shit anymore. You know, if you want to go a different way, fine, but, uh, don't, don't yank my chain. So I go in there with this attitude, right. And I bring them, you know, I'm holding the sides of material and, um, I start the scene and I just, I had this, cavalier kind of like whatever i don't give a fuck you know and i'm just saying whatever and then doing the dialogue you know and then i literally finished audition i threw down the sides and i said fuck this shit i'm out i don't give a fuck and i just walked out (laughs) and and they said "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa whoa hold on hold on hold on oh my god come come back come back have a seat and it's so that is what we wanted to see. And I said, well, why the hell didn't you just tell me? It would have been a lot easier. You just said, just bring it back, bring it back. You know, just don't, you know, try too hard to be this guy and this and that. And I said, you know, yeah, I could, I could have done that. But, you know, I really honestly wanted this role so badly. And maybe I was pushing it. And so when I came in this this last time, I said, you know, I just didn't, I didn't care. I did not care. And sometimes when you have that attitude, that's what gets you the job. And so um, it was it was an interesting lesson because, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, when you want something so badly, uh, you just have to let it go. And, and that's, uh, you know, no truer words were, were spoken when somebody said, yeah, you, sometimes you just have to let it go. And so um, 
you know, it was, it was really kind of a turning point for me as far as, you know, sometimes uh, when, when you put all your eggs in one basket, you know, as, as actors, it's, it's a tough life. You know, we all want to work so badly because, you know, it puts food on our table first and foremost. Right. But it's also a passion of ours, right. To, to be able to uh, put ourselves out there for, you know, people to see. And, um, you know, as I, um, you know, transitioned out a little bit to, uh, do a restaurant, uh, you know, my focus became more about the restaurant than the acting. Uh, and so it kind of took the onus off of the whole audition process, right? Because I, I didn't care anymore because, I knew that I had to put in energy to make this restaurant successful. You know, I still understood that when you do a audition, you have to put a hundred percent in, but then I didn't have that kind of, I got to get this. I got to get this, you know, kind of attitude. I just said, you mm-hmm. know what, if it happens, right. It happens. So I think that gave me the freedom to do whatever the, whatever the hell I wanted. And so, um, it was it was kind of a liberating kind of feeling now that you didn't have this this weight on your shoulders saying oh you got to get this because you really want it and and then you know everything became about that job and you know now it's just i don't i don't care it is what it is um my my uh restaurants are successful and doing well and uh you know uh, career is doing okay. Um, I don't have to worry about, Oh, I need to get this. I need to get that, uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, I just, you know, audition when I feel like it as opposed to, Oh, I need to do this. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. It's kind of, it's kind of a nice place to be. So I'm sorry. I didn't mean to segue into all this stuff, but no, (laughs) that's definitely true. I mean, desperation in, in anything, whether you're going out for a role or, trying to get a job, trying to ask someone out, you know, you don't want to reek of desperation. So this thing with true believer, you, that was completely spontaneous. That wasn't planned out at all. No, no, no. It was in the moment. Um, you know, I think the frustration was, was building. And, and I think when I did the audition itself, I, you know, I just, I didn't care, you know, whether or not I got it or not. Uh, so I think when I put that button on the, the uh, leaving the room like that, it was a spontaneous moment. It wasn't like I planned to say F you guys, but, you know, I think, um, you know, as the character, you, you, you kind of, that's part of the character that comes out. You know, um, I remember when I was shooting that film, uh, there was a, we shot in, in San, what did we shoot? Oh, Folsom. We shot at Folsom prison and, uh, we're on the third tier of this, um, uh, prison in, in where all the cells are. And never forget there was a, uh, AD that was a female AD that was standing, uh, blocking kind of the, the pathway to get to my cell where they were setting up the shot. So she was talking with this big, massive uh, Howley guard that was standing there. And 
And so I just basically put my hands on, on this AD and I kind of pushed her aside and said, oh, excuse me. And I walk in this guy, this big guard grabs me by the arm, spins me around. And he said, don't you ever fucking put a hand on anybody in here ever. Do you understand me? And I was already in character going to shoot this scene. I literally looked up at the guy and I said, and I kind of eyeballed him. I looked him up and down. I said, yeah, whatever. And I turned and walked away and he was, he, he was going to grab me again and, and just freaking light me up. Right. And the AD girl goes, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait a sec. That is one of the actors. Don't, don't. Goes, oh man. He said, I came this close to cold cocking that motherfucker. <laughs> And I, and she told me the story afterwards and I was like, Oh, how funny that, you know? And apparently there was a, a, a guy in another uh, uh, block that uh, I looked like. Right. And so, uh, you know, that, I thought that was a, a funny story. And, you know, but that's, that's the one thing is like, you, you are in character. And during that, that filming of that movie, I was in character. I didn't, you know, um, that's what I did, man. I just played this guy and, and, um, you know, I go outside in the yard and, you know, this is, this is at Folsom, which is a maximum security prison. And, you know, granted they had people kind of shadowing us to make sure we were okay. And, you know, there was like this fence that separated us from the yard where the guys are all kind of doing lifting and, and whatnot. And they look over at me and they go, what you in for? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, acting. And so, <laughs> I'm in uh, here for my acting skills. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, uh, you know, one of those moments where, you know, uh, I just was not going to come out of this character. I just was focused, uh, you know, because I really believed in this, this project. And, you know, when you get a chance to work with somebody like James Woods, uh, and Robert Downey Jr., it was, um, it was quite, uh, a massive, uh, uh, opportunity. Right. Um, and, uh, Woods was, um, really incredible to work with. And, and you talk about an actor that is there, for you, um, you know, when you do your off camera stuff. And I, I mean, I've always been there for actors. I don't ever go and say, I'll, I'm going to leave. I'm going to be in my trailer. See you later. You know, they can just have the script supervisor talk and do the dialogue. Um, but I never did that. And, and James Woods actually was the type of actor that never did that. He would be there for the actors, give a hundred percent, even though he's off camera, he would give you everything. And, uh, which was really special to me because, you know, when you think about certain caliber actors, a lot of them, you know, maybe they don't do that kind of shit, but he was there and he said to me, um, I'm only as good as you make me. So, which was really, uh, um, impactful. Uh, you know, granted, I it didn't didn't change how I did everything because I still, you know, from from day one, I was always there for any actor that needed my off camera dialogue because, you know, at the end of the day, it's about the project as a whole. 
it's not just about your performance. It's about everybody's performance. So, uh, you know, those words stuck with me and, uh, you know, it's something that I try to, you know, pass on, um, to people because shit, I've done so many projects where, you know, um, people just leave. I did a project where five people were in the scene opposite me and all those five people left after I did my off camera for them, they all split. And I'm thinking, wow, that's so nice. Not one of them stayed. And I, I basically had to act with a bunch of C stands. Right. And I had to remember which actor was which actor. And then the script supervisor is saying all the dialogue. So I have to react to whoever is saying it. That's so-and-so. Okay. And that's so-and-so that's, you know, and then I did it, but it, it, it sucked, you know, that they didn't stick around, mm -hmm. but right. that's sometimes how this business goes. And that's why you gotta, you know, be ready for anything. And, and, you know, I tell you, it's, it's always an adventure in this business. When you're shooting in Folsom, when inmates would ask you what you're in for, what would you respond with? Would you actually say something, make something up or just keep your head down? Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're in that situation, I think, you know, you never want to uh, ignore um, people. You you have to respect people. There's, there's that, that, that line that you have to draw, you know, I was off the set, you know, you know, I wasn't on camera anytime soon. I was on this break. So I was just kind of to myself and I was just kind of going over stuff in my mind. And, and, uh, so when they say that kind of stuff, I mean, you, you still have to answer with something respectful. You don't bullshit these, these guys because, you know, that's not what you do. And so I just said, no, I'm, I'm just here as an actor. Like, oh shit. You know, and, you know, and then they just leave you alone. But uh, you never want to be, you know, create this this animosity of this, you know, because it's already pretty dark to begin with, right? And so, in fact, that day they had a shooting and they had lockdown. Yeah, yeah. And so, luckily, we got out because, you know, wow. when you when you go into shoot in a in a maximum security prison they they have a waiver that you sign and what the waiver basically says is that there is a no hostage exchange policy so if you get taken we're not going to negotiate for your release you're pretty much on your own so when you sign that document you go oh, okay well you know let's do this and and just hope for the best and so when you're in there that's why you you know, you got to think about these kind of things. You say, you know, uh, be respectful, you know, because that's a big thing, you know, in, in prisons. It's a lot of respect. So, um, you know, when they ask ask questions and whatnot or whatever, you yeah. just be honest and answer their questions. Um, but when you're on camera or when you're going and you, you have to – you know, be able to flip that switch and, and get into character and then, and then go. Um, some of these, you know, when I think about some, some of these young actors now uh, that I work with, 
they're they're freaking amazing, man. They're just like ah, bah, 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 and you know, effing around, and they said, "Okay, we're ready and action," you know, and they they just you know flip on that switch. Pat Morita was one of those kind of guys where amazing, you know, he was, you know. God bless him, but he loved to party, and uh, heard. you know he he was drunk one time in this one scene, and literally he's like, oh okay, okay, what are you doing? Okay, and then uh, they said an action. He goes, uh, how how much how many uh, ice do does he have to break or whatever, you know? And that particular scene, he was he was pretty sloshed, but he just boom. <laughs> He's a boom right into character, and it was amazing to watch, you know, uh, how these guys could just flip it on and flip it off, right? He was drunk in the ice breaking scene. He was pretty. He was pretty uh, inebriated. Um, he, he he had his first lines of dialogue to me, and I was like, "Oh man, wow, Pat, late night, you know." But yeah, he was he was notorious for. Uh, having uh, late night sessions, uh, you know, being out and about, enjoying himself, which, dude, man, I mean, the guy lived a really full life, Uh, you know, whether it's through the stand-up comedy, through the acting, you know, whatever it was, partying and all that. I mean, he lived it to the fullest, so... um, yeah, he he was quite the character. Um, love that man, and and I miss him to this day. You know, wish wish he was still around. But um, yeah, he was really a, a great great dude. Yeah, it seemed like it. I wish I met him. Let me ask you. You know, we're seeing a lot better, quote unquote, better Asian representation in Hollywood. Did you ever think that it would uh, get? To this point that, you know, we're not all the way there. Nothing's perfect for sure, but it's much better than it was, say, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 2000s, you know, because there were always a lot of stops and starts. We would hope that some particular movie would break through and whatnot, but then it wouldn't. So did you ever think that it would evolve to this point? Yeah, I mean, we've all seen it before in the past where, uh, there were breakthrough Asian American movies that came out, and we thought, "Oh, maybe this is the this is the opportunity for people to see that uh, people of color can make a difference as far as box office." Because at the end of the day, that's what it's based off of, right? Right. Popularity right. is based off of box office, and you know, when films like uh, Joy Luck Club came out, we thought, oh, shit, this is going to be awesome for Asian American actors. Now we're going to see a, a spike in, in films about Asian American stories and whatnot. And, you know, I think it just came and went. It's almost like we we missed that opportunity. We missed that bus. Um, and um, so now, fast forward to... Um, you know, some of these other films that are out there now or that are coming out. I think we just have to keep that momentum going in this, in that direction. Uh, you know, whether, you know, it's, it's through creating projects ourselves or um, being ready to take on roles that are um, mainstream 
kind of roles and really performing and, and doing a really bang up job. Um, being ready as a filmmaker uh, to put in, put in 110% and be better than the next guy, you know? So um, I just hope it, the momentum, momentum continues because uh, you know, we've seen it happen in the past and, and hopefully, you know, it, it won't happen again. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we all try and do our part and that's part of the reason why I had um, come on board to produce the paper tigers is for that reason, because uh, it was strong uh, minority roles in there for uh, especially uh, lead roles for uh, Asian American actors. Uh, you know, you, you just try and do your part and, and create these, these vehicles that, um, you know, make a difference, tell our stories. I mean, we've seen plenty of these martial arts films from Asia, but what about in, here in America? What is our, our stories, you know, whether it's um, family dramas, whether it's comedies, whether it's, uh, you know, martial arts, action, whatever it is, uh, what are, what's our perspective? What's our story? Um, you know, and I think that's kind of the direction that, um, I hope uh, our community is going, uh, you know, but let's just fucking keep this, this ball rolling um, uh, and, and not, not stop. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me. It's almost like if we didn't have social media, you know, social media obviously has its own own terrible problems, but it's allowed, you know, voices to speak up to say, we want this, you know, all kinds of voices, including Asian American voices. So, you know, I wonder that if maybe if uh, social media didn't exist, would it still be one of those things where it's like a stop and a start type thing? And it's just kind of the cycle that we get stuck in. But anyway, Moving on, you know, we live in a day and age, kind of like a perpetual present, right? Like everything is accessible via the internet. So I'm curious, like, when did you get a sense that Chosen as a character was going to come back or that he resonated with so many people? Basically, when did you get a sense that Chosen was making a comeback? I, I actually did not have any clue. I mean, I I think uh, the the fan base... And my friends were actually the ones that just kept bugging me about why aren't you on the show? And, Cobra Kai. You know, the, this is um, a show that Chosen should be on. And, uh, you know, they, they need the, that Asian character that, uh, you know, uh, that shows the, the, that perspective. And, you know, so I, I heard it all. And this is the first two seasons. Uh, they, you know, I heard nothing from them, right? So as they're prepping for season three, uh, they contacted uh, my agent and says, yeah, we're looking at probably bringing back uh, Chosen for season three. And, uh, you know, they said, uh, we're going to send a, a script and, um, you know, tell us what he thinks. And so it was 
one of those spec kind of scripts. Uh, it wasn't a final or anything like that, but they wanted my opinion. Um, so when they send it to me, I read it and uh, nothing against them. I think they're really good guys, but it wasn't the direction I thought uh, Chosen could, should go. And um, the reintroduction of his character, I thought I, I, I just didn't want to do because uh, I think not only for the character, you know, paying, paying deference to the character himself, but also I think paying deference to the, the fan base of the expectation, you know, uh, and the Asian American community, all that stuff came into play. Uh, I didn't want to be this kind of apologetic character no. from the get go. Right. Not at all. Um, I wanted him to have some strength because it's all about honor with chosen. Right. Right. And respect. And, you know, you don't know what he's gone through for those 30 whatever years that he's been missing. Uh, so I wanted him to come on with kind of more of a bang as opposed to a whimper. And, you know, initially they had me apologize to him and say, I'm sorry for everything I did, blah, blah, my, my past transgressions and whatnot. And I said, uh, that leaves this character nowhere to go. You mm -hmm. know, if he's already there, then I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go there. He has to come in as, as a, you know, as this proud dude. Yeah. Right. So I sent my notes to, um, the, the writers and, um, you know, they're very precise, very, you know, to the point, uh, and all the history that I included in that. And so they said, well, let us run with this before you say no. So, um, they reworked, uh, the script and they sent it back, uh, to me. And, uh, that version was so much better so much better than what it was because, um, you know, uh, like I said, I want this character to have some sort of progression, right? Absolutely. He can't come in from here, you know, or here and then go, have nowhere to go. Right. So, um, they, they listened to what I had to, uh, say as far as, um, you know, how my perspective was for this character and, and they implemented it. And uh, from that point, I said, yeah, I'm down. Uh, so that's kind of how that whole thing went down as far as me being involved with it. But I had no idea how they're going to incorporate Chosen into this Cobra Kai world. No clue. So I figured, well, you know, if it happens, it happens. And, and it happened, which was awesome. I'm glad. Right. And Tamlin too was on. So it was even better. Oh, yeah, totally. So coming back to Chosen, right, it's been 30, 35 years. Did you, I'm assuming that you went and created like a history of where he's been for those years, right? So how deep did you go to kind of like bring him from 1986 until now? I mean, you don't have to tell me, of course, that's that's private to you, but how far did that kind of research and kind of just like, you know, chosen history in your mind go for you? You know, uh, as an actor, we're always, uh, well, for me, 
uh, I always do histories on a lot of the characters I play. Where were they before and where are they now? So each character you play always has some sort of history behind them. And it just kind of makes your character richer if you have all that backstory implemented into your your brain because otherwise, you know, you're just kind of doing it on the fly. And for me, I just like to, to do all that homework before I step foot on any set. So, uh, you know, as far as Chosen, yeah, I did kind of have my own version of where he went during the that time from, you know, getting dissed in the, on the uh, uh, by the villagers to um, the point of, you know, Cobra Kai. Uh, so, uh, you know, I won't get into details, but yeah, I mean, I did a I did a kind of history on what he had gone through. And I think that perspective when he came into uh, that season three was, was all, all there and kind of very real in, in my mind. Um, And I think playing that character back in the eighties and kind of doing the history even back then, right. Of what he was, at the moment when, you know, this, 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 uh, you know, Mr. Miyagi and, and Daniel son get introduced to him, uh, all the stuff that, you know, he had heard through his uncle and, you know, whatever, uh, he, he now gets a chance to do this face to face. So what is, how is he feeling about all that stuff? So yeah, I did a history back then and I did a history for, um, those 30, odd years that, uh, um, you know, from the point of his disgrace to the present, you know, and that's a lot of stuff to hold on to. Right. You know, because that's the last moment that he had exchanged with Danielson was getting humiliated. And then they go off on their merry way and I'm left to pick up the pieces of my life. So, uh, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, quote unquote baggage um, and probably a, a lot of hurt that he carried with him uh, in dishonor for all those years. So, um, yeah, I, and I, you know, kind of gave him a somewhat of uh, my own little backstory of what kind of I, in my mind happened. And uh, also, yeah, like you said about the the mental uh, part of it too. I mean, you know how how was his uh, mental state after all this stuff happened? And you know, you got to think about you know the situation and what he went through. And you know, if you play that in your mind, how would you react to that as chosen, not as me, but as chosen? So um, yeah, it was it was a lot of. Uh, digging deep into these, you know, dark moments that he had because uh, he was probably in a super dark place, you know, wasn't like all fun and games now. Okay. uh, Everything's forgiven. And now I can move on. I was like, (laughs) hell no. And so that's why it was important for me when I had this first encounter with Daniel son after all these years to kind of have a little bit, you know, I can, oh, if 
you know, because all the stuff I had learned over all those years, it ain't going to happen again. I'll take your head off right. this time, you know? So you have to have all this stuff playing underneath that kind of, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, you know? So final question, final, final question. Do you have any kind of recommendation for an actor, filmmaker, producer, restaurateur oh. even? Anything that's inspired you it could be a book, a movie, a song, a saying, whatever, I, you know, a journey, like, yeah, <laughs> like on your journey. Right. Uh, okay. So as far as the restaurant, I tell people don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, if, unless you have a true passion and, and can manage to do every aspect of the restaurant, whether it's bookkeeping, uh, cooking, uh, you know, having the front, front office of front uh, kind of personality to meet and greet people. But yeah, I think that's, that's what you got to um, have a passion for everything and learn everything about the restaurant business. Because, you know, any given moment, shit can happen where all your guys in the kitchen walk out on you. And then, then what do you do? Right. So you got to be able to do everything when it comes to restaurant. Now take that in producing, it's the same kind of thing, right? Where you have to uh, juggle and put out fires and all that stuff. So you have to be able to have that ability to multitask as a producer, right? Uh, as an actor, um, I mean, we, we all hit on that point about the true believer audition and all that stuff about, you know, not, you know, uh, having, such desperation when you do these auditions, just, you know, come in there and just, just let it go and not worry about it. Uh, not want anything that bad. Uh, I always, um, tell young actors, you know, as far as dialogue is concerned, always say the lines like it's the first time you were saying it, not the 25th, hundredth whatever time that you said it in your you know rehearsal but memorizing just remember every line has to be fresh and say you're saying it for the first time um also um a couple other things to remember <coughs> um and and i'm the worst at this I, I i'm a kind of a perfectionist um but i tell you one thing perfection is the death of good acting, if that makes sense. Right. Yep. Um, so that's another thing. And then also one of the, the things that, uh, I, I learned from the very beginning was love art in yourself, not yourself in art. So, um, nice. yeah, that's so a, true. It's a famous so Russian true. teacher, Stanislavski that I, um, remember somebody always, uh, you know, repeating that, that mantra, that quote is, is super important because you don't want to be in the business for the wrong reason. Um, and always have a fallback plan, <laughs> you know, uh, I tell you, the restaurant business helped me so much because it took the onus off of the audition process. So sometimes it's good to have other passions, other things to, you know, keep your mind occupied. So you don't, you know, bang yourself over the head over stupid auditions and whatnot. Um, you know, and uh, there's one thing about um, failure, right? Uh, you know, 
encouraging uh, filmmakers to, you know, if, they, if this is what they want, they should pursue their dream. But, you know, um, you, know you should never let that, that fear of failure stand in your way because, you know, you think about these Miyagi-isms, these quotes that Mr. Miyagi said, there's, there's, there are things that he said that are really important things that you can put into your everyday life. You may think, oh, how does that pertain to me? But, you know, you talk about uh, the, the fear of failure. You know, he says that one thing to Daniel's son, you know, it's okay to lose to opponent, must not lose to fear. So you substitute opponent for life <laughs> and it's almost the same thing. So that's why um, for right. me, you know, when, when you talk about Karate Kid, there's, there's more to Karate Kid than just um, the film itself. I think it, you know, all the things that Mr. Miyagi had imparted on Daniel-san, there are things in there that you could apply to your everyday life. And, um, you know, as far as no, totally. real quick, um, God, are there inspirations as far as filmmakers or actors that I, uh, I didn't expect you to, you know, all the things I was just expecting one, one of the things. So. Oh no, no, I, I go for it all, man. <laughs> <laughs> you ask me one, I'll answer all the questions <laughs> that come along with it. Appreciate um, it. But yeah. Uh, it's all great stuff, man. All great stuff. Well, thanks, man. Thanks so much for coming on to the show. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate your time, man. Listeners, you can find Yuji everywhere on the internet and the socials at Yuji Okamoto. If you're in Seattle, drop by and check out his restaurant, Kona Kitchen, konakitchen.com. And you can also buy some cool new t-shirts, a collaboration with Yuji's friend's t-shirt company from Hawaii. Of course, check out season five of Cobra Kai out on Netflix. Also on Netflix is Yuji's film, Paper Tigers, directed by our mutual friend, Bao Tran. And check out Yuji in a music video from the EDM band Odessa, a song called Love Letter. All of this will be linked up in the show notes below. And that, my friends, is the first episode of the National Film Society podcast. Feel free to hit me up on Twitter at Patrick Epino, E-P-I-N-O. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch this podcast and subscribe and see our smiling faces on YouTube at youtube.com slash Patrick Epino. If you're so inclined, please do leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and also say nice stuff about the show in a review on Apple Podcasts. Music in this episode is provided by Paper Sun. The National Film Society podcast is produced by National Film Society. Duh. That's it. That's it.